Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee B. Today coming to you from Cheshire in the great state of Connecticut. And I'm here in the home of a very special guest, Attorney Cheryl Sharp, who is the Deputy Director of the State of Connecticut Commission on Human Rights. And we're going to be talking a lot about her journey and how she's become one of the foremost lawyers in the state and somebody who is in the heart of some of the storms that are currently plaguing America, particularly in the area of human rights and civil rights. Welcome, Cheryl Sharp. Thank you, and I'm glad to be here today. The, the first question I have, I wanted to get a handle on the difference between human rights and civil rights. So maybe start there. Okay, so let's start with the human rights that you have are the rights that we have by virtue of just being a human being on the earth versus civil rights, which are laws that we make. And so our, a civil right would be uh, you have a right to not be discriminated against in employment, housing, credit transactions, in places of public accommodation. A human right would be you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness right. by, by virtue of being a, a human being on this earth. So shelter, food. Yes. Tell me about what exactly you do day to day. Okay, so every day is different. As an attorney, I prosecute claims of discrimination in the Superior Court and the Connecticut Supreme Court. I'm barred also in the federal court. I also negotiate settlements between parties. One party claims that they were the victim of illegal discrimination. The other party who's being sued claims most of the time that they did nothing wrong. Um, Although I had a really interesting case where I received a verified answer. The answer said, admit, admit, admit to all of this discrimination and the use of the racial slur, the N-word. And so I was shocked. I was like, wow, this employer has totally admitted to repeatedly using the N-word. And his justification was that, well, people of color use the word, so why can't he use the word in reference to his employee? Um, He didn't mean it in the way that the employee was taking it. The the, uh, employee was, you know, very offended, uh, but he had to take care of his family. So for a long time, he didn't say anything. He just, you know, kind of took it and, and then it just became too much. And he finally said, this is not right. And I am not the N-word. I'm a man, and I want to be respected, and I do a good job here. And it just went downhill from there for him. What the law says is that in a place of employment, you cannot treat someone differently because of their protected class status. Right. And your next question may be, what is a protected class? It is a, a trait that we have that's immutable. It's who we are right. as, as people, a man, a woman, black, white. In the state of Connecticut, we have really progressive laws, so there are 26 protected classes. Hmm. You know, So disability and learning disability, physical disability and mental disability are all covered. Sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, and the list goes on and on. How, so just focusing in maybe a bit on the race issue here in America, and, and, and do you think that it's getting better or getting worse? I think that with presidential candidates like Trump running, I think that people feel more comfortable exposing their racist selves. There's a platform for them to express that hate now. Yeah, That's very unfortunate. The use of the N-word, I don't condone it. I think that it's harmful because of the history of the word and mm-hmm. its usage. 
So do you not do you not condone it for use amongst African Americans either? No, because it is not a term of endearment. But what about the, the argument that says, and I I would differ with you on this. The argument that says it's a word and it's about how the word is used uh, and in what context it's used. A lot of the usage of the word amongst African Americans and even friends of African Americans is, you know, it's like me calling somebody a c word or me calling someone or someone calling me a mick or a paddy, which is quite derogatory to Irish people if it's coming and meant in the way that that word can be used derogatorily. Also, a friend of mine who's American could call me and I, I wouldn't have a problem because I know he's or she's not that kind of person. Your argument, I think, is that it's still propagating that its existence, the word's existence should be removed. Yes, the word needs to be buried. It yeah. shouldn't be in use. It right. has negative connotation. There's a generation of people who want to redefine the use of the word and redefine yeah. the term. But it's a racist word, and it was used in that manner to degrade Yes, yeah, no, I agree with all that, of People of African course. descent. So I cringe every time I hear a young person mm. use the N-word. I cringe every time I hear it in a uh, rap song. I can tell you, I went to Iceland um, because my youngest brother lives in Iceland. And I went out to uh, listen to some music with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, this individual who was white was singing. He was actually singing one of Tupac's songs. So he kept saying the N-word over and over again. Right. And I was horrified, and I had a discussion with my brother afterwards, and he was telling me, he's like, that N-word doesn't mean the same thing in this country because they don't have that history of slavery. and The way that the word is being used just to sing Tupac's song because Tupac said it, they think that that's okay here. Well, I mean, Tupac, don't forget Tupac put those lyrics into his song and someone's doing a cover version of his song. So it would be also extremely weird to to do a cover version of Tupac's song with the word not in there, right? (laughs) It makes it a difficult situation to do a cover (laughs) and not use the word. However, I I just believe the use of the word is very destructive for Mm. the African-American community Mm. and for all other communities. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have worked in the Northeast, in, in New York and Boston, and I've also lived in Denver, and I've lived in, in Texas. Texas probably being the epicenter of racism. And one of the things I noticed was the difference between racism in the South and in the North is in the South, it's very on the surface. You can see it. It's you can very hear it, and it's overt. But I also find that New York is extremely racist, and I find that Boston is extremely racist. And I find that my point is, I think they're thinking it; they're just not saying it. Yes, and and that's very, it's a very sad place to be. Yes, and I, and I agree because it is covert in the North, and it's overt in the South. So the the question is whether which one is more palatable, or is neither one palatable? For me, neither one is pal- yes, I agree, palatable yeah, yeah. because I believe in equality. Injustice anywhere threatens justice everywhere, to quote Dr. Martin Luther King. So we have to be careful as a society when we look at these issues and when we delve deeper into them. How we define it is important. How we address it is equally important. Words matter. Right now there's this controversy. Black lives matter versus all lives matter. Mm. There's a movement, a Black Lives Matter movement movement. The counter movement says, no, all lives matter. Let's not just focus on black lives. And I think when people say black lives matter, 
that they're not saying that all lives have no value. They're Correct. saying right now we need to focus yeah. on black lives because they're being taken at an alarming rate. Yeah, there's something sinister with the all lives matter angle. Yeah, we know all lives matter, but right now the problem is in this area. So let's kind of focus here. And by the way, if you fix this, probably the other one will fix as well. It's like a a Venn diagram, you know. Your listeners uh, listening will will be maybe surprised to know or interested to know that uh, Cheryl is a a relative of a very famous, probably one of the most famous civil rights people in America, which is Rosa Parks. How do you feel she would see today given her stand that she took all those years ago on the bus would she be happy or would she feel there's still a huge way to go i think that she would feel that we have a long way to go throughout my life i had the pleasure of being in her company maybe only three times at family reunions because we're related to her through marriage what was she like she was mild-mannered quiet Sweet, nice, comforting. Am I right in saying that this she had a stand quiet. she took was a spur of the moment thing? It wasn't, or was it something that she had planned to do, or how, how did she? You know, that's an interesting question because my mother asked her <laughs> what right. happened that day. She had a quiet strength and she stood up for what she believed in. At that time, though, it wasn't like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to go on that bus and I'm not... I yes. think it was, it was a... It no, was a, it, was imp- it was impromptu. Yeah. Which, which is how a we lot watched. of great things happen. Absolutely right. Absolutely. <laughs> People get weary and, and get tired of being treated discriminatorily and, and then they address it. It's been an interesting journey for me because i haven't reached the pinnacle of my career yet because i want to have that type of impact on the civil rights community and on the state of connecticut and potentially on the nation what about the cop thing this cop thing that's happening this kind of clear murder by police officers you know people say oh yeah the police officers are jumpy and you know, black people have guns and, and they never know if they're going to be, get there, get shot themselves. And, hey, look, another police officer got shot. And it was a black guy who shot him. Tell me what you, how you view all of that stuff, because that's, a, that's a, something that's really erupted in the last two years. Uh, I sit on the uh, racial profiling uh, working group for the state of Connecticut. And so we are looking at stop data based on uh, race and, and some other uh, factors. Um, so just to explain, stop data is a cop stopping a driver just because he's black or pulling up beside a black person walking down the street just because he's black, right? The stop data is how many stops were made. Is there a disproportionate stopping of individuals of color or individuals who are Muslim in comparison to the number of those individuals who would actually be driving through that particular town at any given time? Mm -hmm. You look at dusk to dawn, and then is there a variance between the the stopping that's occurring during periods of time where you can't see who the um, who the person is, and so we look at all of that data and try to see if there are patterns. And are there patterns? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. And it is disheartening. You know, it's difficult because you want cops to serve and protect. Right? They're there for our public safety, but they have guns. And if you're a motorist and you get pulled over. There's an imbalance of power because if you don't have a gun and if you're not doing anything wrong and you're just a citizen, then it can be frightening. 
And then imagine if you're just pulled over because of the color of your skin or because you're a Muslim, because mm-hmm. of your faith. It's a difficult interaction. But on the flip side, it's difficult for an officer because they're putting their life on the line every single day. And they are going to encounter some people who are criminals and some who are not. Yeah. And so I can understand that their heightened sense of urgency in, in, in certain uh, situations. But you don't want implicit bias to get in the way of making a split-second yeah. decision that is the matter of life and death. You don't want situations where a Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy, gets six seconds before yeah. he's shot and killed. And then, I can't remember this the gentleman's name. was the kid with a toy gun in his hand yes. in the playground. Yeah. And he had a toy gun in his mm-hmm. hand. And then you have the situation where you have uh, the individual who shot and killed nine individuals in a black church in South Carolina, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um and you saw pictures of him being taken to get food. So what happened there? What happened to the white man um, in Planned Parenthood? Why did he get so much more time? That that's the question that we have to ask ourselves as a nation. But then you look at the you look at the Michael Brown slaying or whatever way you want to describe it as. About two days later, and just down the road, this, there was a guy who was accused of uh, African American guy was accused of stealing some beer from a, a corner store and this other guy's walking down the street filming this guy waiting for the cops to arrive and it's all caught on camera and and you know they're all waiting around and the cop car pulls up and the official thing was he came at them with a knife but you can see he didn't have a knife however he did say shoot me shoot me you know he had his arms in the air he was going come on shoot me because he was annoyed and he was his blood was boiling he was a crazy guy there was no doubt he was there was something wrong there but I was talking with some of my Irish friends about this. If two Irish cops arrive in a cop car, they don't have a gun, right? And they have to deal with crazy people shouting at the traffic, as we call it, back home. And this guy, I think from the moment the car braked to him being dead was something like 34 seconds. And there were seven bullets put in him. And it was all called on camera by a bystander. The point is, to me, that just shows a complete lack of... Uh, judgment in terms of saying, well, you know, we're going to meet crazy... Now, you know, the, the the cops might say, well, most of those guys who are robbing stores have a gun. And so we pull up and we see this crazy guy coming at us. I mean, they shot him from 20 feet away, more maybe. He was walking towards them. They did tell him to stop. He did say, shoot me. I thought that was going to spark the whole thing off because here we now had visual evidence of this happening. Right. Because the, the brown thing, at least, there was a he said, she said. It was like, did he, did he try and wrestle the gun off the off the detective? Yes. Did the detective get out and shoot him? Did he shoot him in the back? Was the guy coming towards him? You know, and then there was the atrocity of him and left out in the sun for three hours while his mother yes. and whatever. Uh, how do you? What do you think about that? I think when a child dies, a controversy is going to be sparked. Yeah. When a child dies at the hands of the police. Yeah. Eyebrows are raised. You have parents who are distraught and devastated. People's maternal and paternal instincts kick in. When you talk about a Trayvon Martin or you talk about a Michael Brown, those were children that had their lives snuffed out. Never got to realize their potential. Never got to see another day. How much of this might be because everybody walking around today has got a camera, a video camera in their pocket? I think that that has changed our awareness of what's going on. I don't think that this is new. 
you hope that racism isn't instinctual, especially for those who have to make split-second decisions that are life and death, which is what police officers have to do. They have to but make I think it is. split-second second decisions. I think it um, is because the cops will shoot a black person before they shoot a white person. That's instinctive. I mean, they will instinctively pull that trigger faster if there's a black person in front of them than if there's a white person. There's no doubt about that. Right. right? So we have to then address uh, implicit bias. Mm. And we have to look at fair and impartial policing. Mm. Because if you instinctually fear an individual before they do anything, yeah. and then you have this fear of a black person, and then you encounter a black person in a difficult situation, let's say that they have mental health issues mm. or they're a kid and, and, and they're just being you know aggressive like sometimes children are, no one expects their child to get into an argument with a cop and, and then be shot and killed. I mean, where do you stand as a, as, a, as a you know an attorney on this whole gun thing? There needs that the, we have to have gun control. People need to look at the Constitution and the Second Amendment and uh, look at it in a historical context. Yeah. It does say that we have the right to to bear arms. And the Second Amendment being an 18th century law that was actually put in with, I think, very honorable intent by the lawmakers to say, look, if we ever get out of control, if we ever start looking like we're becoming a dictatorship, if we're ever starting to take land off people, or it was an act designed to protect democracy rather than, yes. you know, which is not going to happen. Defend, it's not going to happen today. I mean, you know, yes. but I'm in Texas. You know, as I used to say about Texas, Texas is one tantrum away from secession. And it can secede. It has it in its, in its articles that it can secede. But Texan people who have... 40 guns in their gun closet, a huge percentage of them believe, oh, no, this could happen. Yes. The government could take over, and we're going to defend, like, I'm like, what, like the Alamo or something? They're going to come riding in. Like, what are you talking about? Black Hawk helicopters around your house? How do we stop that? How do we fix it? You have to restrict use. You have to make sure that individuals getting their license to bear arms are stable. It can't be easier to get a gun than to get a, a license to drive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, Obama's come out with some amazing, amazingly evocative, tearful, angry rhetoric against what's happening every time, and he's sick and tired, as he says, of having to do this. Again, coming at it from an outsider looking into America. It's like we keep putting band aids on this. Like to yes. me, someone needs to be of sane mind. Is a band aid. For me, closing down the NRA is surgery. Uh, having a, an amnesty for people to turn in guns, ha- allowing people to only have certain calibers of rifle at home or, or, or pistol or whatever it is as a yes. starting point. Getting whatever there is, something like 350 million guns in America, maybe it's more, I can't remember, uh, uh, making that under uh, 50 million. Big, big moves like that. The patient needs to go to hospital and have a heart you know, lung and, and liver transplant. It doesn't need to to get stitches in its arm. You know, why can't there be another another amendment to the Constitution that changes... So think about the Constitution and how long we've had the Constitution yeah. and how few times it has been amended. It's yeah. not uh, an easy task um, right. to undertake. Yeah. And I, I don't know 
where America is on this yet. Well, I think it'd be tight. There's, there are pockets, yes. No, I I'm going to say there are pockets in this country where... Texas would secede. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's, there's going to be a serious fall. But we have referenda in Ireland once every two years. We have referenda on... Uh, abortion. We have a referendum on divorce. We have a referendum on should we accept the latest European Union bailout. I mean, that's democracy. Democracy is, oops, the government don't know what they're doing. The government go, let's go and ask the people because that's who we're representing and we're not sure what the sentiment is. Have you ever been in a, either in a case or in a situation where you've almost just gone, this is just too hard? Some of the school cases uh, that I've prosecuted, I can't believe some of the pedagogy that people think is okay. Yeah. Um, I had a case against the uh, city of Hartford that's at public hearing because they took a group of 11-year-olds and did a reenactment of slavery and had the, the kids running through the woods in the dark and huh. told them to imagine that they'd never see their parents again what? and that their Achilles were going to be cut off and... Was this a Halloween thing? No, no. <laughs> this is this was supposed to teach them about What does that bullying. teach anybody anything? In accordance to their position, slavery was the worst form of bullying. Huh? And so those types of Let's have been in the room when they <laughs> Hey, let's just brainstorm a few things for the kids this. Year. Right. Th- those are those but are like the, so so what happens there? Does the school get a big fine against it or? This is one that's pending. It's okay. at public hearing, which is why I have uh, the freedom to talk about it. Right. That case will if it goes to hearing is going to be all over the news, right? Yes, it's already been in the newspaper. Yeah. Um, to me, it it's just shocks the consciousness. Yeah, yeah. I've always wanted to ask an attorney, how often do you get this disappointment of being involved in a case where you're on the losing side, but you know you're right? You, you really know you're right. I had a, I've had a lot of success with, with my cases. Right. Um, I really have one that went to the Supreme Court, okay. and that was a travesty of justice. Okay. Because what happened in this particular Do case... Do most lawyers who lose cases call them travesties of justice? I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I've won a lot of uh, my cases, or most That of were travesties of justice. No, and they were not travesties of justice, but this was a travesty of justice. Right, what happened? This was a case, and it was about soils and foundations and bridges, yeah. right? So there was this gentleman. He didn't have this engineering uh, license. He was an engineer. He had served as the supervisor in this department. He had covered when the supervisor was out. But when he went for the permanent position, he got denied the position. He was an Asian man. Mm -hmm. There were white men who also served in the position that he was trying to get. Yeah. They didn't have the license, but they got the job. He didn't get the job. And what we look at in the law is, are they similarly situated? Yes. Right? Because they're both engineers. Yeah. Do they have the license or they don't have the license? In this particular case, neither guy had the license. The white man, however, got the supervisory position. The Asian person did not get the supervisory position. Right. So there's a difference in treatment. So the question is, is that a difference in treatment attributable to discrimination or is it attributable to something else? Yeah. If you, on the one hand, say that you need the license and bridges will crash to the ground if you don't have this license because you won't deal with the soil right yeah. and you won't know if the soil can hold the bridge up. And, uh, yeah, but Asian, they neither have the license. What happens if the Asian if guy's got Tourette's or he sheds his head off and the other guy <laughs> doesn't? I mean, you've got to come up with a reason to hire them. Right, but this is what How I'm saying. How do you prove that the only reason the Asian wasn't hired was because he was Asian? Yeah, this is an interesting point. It's kind of meant semi 
humorously. But when I was hiring, I would discriminate in favor of hiring women against men. I would just because I think men in the jobs that I was hiring for in strategic planning, they had the same qualifications. Mm-hmm. In some cases, they had more experience. But I found that women were more empathetic and they were uh, smarter and they understood how people take better, right? So that's discrimination. Of course it is against men. I know, yeah. But I won't get called up on that. In fact, if anything, people will go, oh, Sean's great because he, he, he doesn't mind hiring women. I think the girl has got better empathy, key part of the job. Not discrimination, better empathy, better understanding of what makes By people tick. By virtue of her as an individual or because of her gender? By, and I'm pigeonholing, but in a general sense of the word, I feel that women, not all women, and sometimes I've hired men over women, but usually in the jobs that I'm looking at, I find that women are far stronger candidates. That's I, I, as I said, yeah, yeah well, I'm yes. glad you said yes. that because yeah. again, there is this, there's this positive. Is it called? You actually I mean, you're diversifying your workforce, but you're doing it using discriminatory means to get there. You have this uh, idea already in your head that yeah. women are better. But than where does that idea come from? I didn't just come up with it. It's come from 27 years experience, right, uh, across the world. And here's the problem. Using that same logic, if your idea that you had in your head from your experience mm. was that black people are inferior and they're not going to do as good of a job or they're mm. going to call out more, yeah. then you're not going to hire a black person. I hear you. I mean, you, you're the lawyer here. You can tie me up in knots. I've already gone to jail over this. <laughs> but I'm just so that's, saying, I mean, it's, it, it's absolutely yeah, yeah. unequivocal. I'm, but I, but I, I guess what I, I mean, I said it was slightly humorous. I don't call the cops on me. But I'm just saying that <laughs> when we go back to the, the bridges and the soil and the Asian guy and the white guy, I mean, at some point in time, there's somebody who's doing the hiring. And you've got to look at temperament. Is this person going to be fun around the place? For example, what if it was two white guys? And one goes, oh, I didn't get the job because... I was a ginger. I had ginger hair. A lot of people I know who've got ginger hair feel they're really hard done by because girls don't go out with them as much as they, you know, they discriminate against. But you know what I mean? Where do, I'm, I'm so, kind of being facetious here. Here's the line. There are protected classes under the law. Ginger hair is not one of those protected classes. Well, I classes. think it should be. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. As okay. an Irishman, I believe. <laughs> but if you use a protected class to make your decision and, and, and you're, you're using that protected class to deny someone an opportunity that is discrimination it comes down to looking at yourself in the mirror it comes down to you're either a racist or you're not a racist you're either a bigot or you're not a bigot and I find that having to tiptoe around and I'm going to use the word mores or political correctness or what you are and are not allowed to say in, in public often in my view stymies and restricts discourse and advancement of thinking you want to be able to stereotype with no consequences it sounds to no what you have described to me is stereotyping Mm -hmm. you have a stereotype of how women are how they're going to Mm -hmm. be in a job that's not every woman no Um, when every interview that you do you have to consider them as individuals not as oh this woman is interviewing and this man is interviewing you have a set of criteria Mm -hmm. Right, that you're looking for. Hmm. You're looking for compassion. You're looking for whatever those criteria are. It shouldn't be. I'm looking for. Well, white the obvious one for me is to hire a transgender person, right? And then I'll be covering all angles. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. No, I, I look. I'm being I'm being devil's advocate here, and yes. I know I know yeah. you're a lawyer, and I'm not, and I'm tying myself up yeah. and not brilliantly here. Me. Yeah, no, my I'm not. I, off I, my neck is what's <laughs> happening. All right, look. One of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is just your background that got you here, because you're you're also a filmmaker. You write films. So I created the job that I wanted to have. Obviously, I'm a, a prosecuting attorney, a trial attorney. I love that work. But in college, I majored in history and theater. So wait, did you do a law degree then after that, was it? Yes, then okay. I went to law school right. and business school after that. So why did you do theater and history? Or well, I had a background in theater. My mom's an actress. I've ah. been acting since I was about Has she been anything famous? Um, she's done a lot of off-Broadway ah, work. Okay. She did something with the Negro Ensemble Company. She's done a lot of documentary film uh, making. And I needed to marry the creative arts with social justice. That's a tricky one, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and so initially in my career, I was doing... So um, did you actually, when you got into law, you had that ambition. You said, I need to also have an avenue for my creative... Oh, definitely. Right. You have choices in life. Um, you have different paths you can take. Artists sometimes struggle until they make it financially. And I didn't feel like I could struggle <laughs> financially. Yeah. And so I had to have a profession where I knew that I was going to have a steady paycheck. So I, I said, well, after majoring in history and theater, um, I, I have to go to law school. I was interested in civil rights. I was interested in social justice. I always have been. I used to take the food out of our house when I was a kid and bring it to the neighborhood kids. And, um, Did that go down well the, with your mother? No, she wasn't happy about my <laughs> mother and father were like, we are also <laughs> struggling <laughs> to put food on the table. Stop Brilliant. taking the food out of the house, Cheryl. But when I saw people in need, I just felt like you know there was something that I could do, even, yeah, if, great. even if it was to take the food out of our house. So, you know, fast forward to... Um, Again, I majored in history and theater. Then I went to law school. Then I started my job at the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. Then I went to business school because I wasn't sure like exactly uh, which path my career was going to go into. And I'm like, I, need, I think I need to know something about business. I wanted to do entertainment law also. So tell me how many um, years you studied. A lot of years. Four years undergrad, three years law school, two years business school. Wow. Ten, it was nine a, years. <laughs> yes. So, but it was, you know, it was great. I got it out of the All early. of them, of course, really do. You can't get enough other subjects when you're a lawyer. Yes. It's one of those, know a lot about it. A little about a lot. A little about a lot, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but then um, with my job, it's like I, speci I was specializing in, you know, labor and employment law mm. and um, civil uh, rights and law enforcement. But I'm a bouncer. Like, I need to do a lot of different uh, things. And my mind is always running. So after a couple of years, I was like, yeah, I like prosecuting cases, but this isn't it. I need to be doing more. Yeah. So I had to fashion the job that I wanted. Right. Because So I went into the supervisor, and I was like, you know, I really love what I do. Like, I, equality is important. Civil rights is important. I love my job, but I am bored because I need to be doing more. And initially, what I heard was, Cheryl, you're here. You're hired as an attorney. You're here to do your cases. Relax. Do the cases. I was getting the cases done, and then I struck a deal with the director at the time. I was like, I'll get all my cases done, and when I'm done with my cases, then I can work on stuff I want to work on. And so finally, he, he like you know broke down. He was like, okay, Cheryl, fine. 
So then I like started writing grants and I started doing education and outreach events and racial profiling informational sessions and going into schools and talking to kids about discriminatory bullying and how to protect themselves. And then I was able to buy a whole bunch of film equipment. And so then I started doing a documentary and interviewing complainants who who had uh, gone to public hearing. And then we had this huge internship program. And so then I made these public service announcements. And then I got some kids in and actually had a film program inside of the commission, a documentary filmmaking program in the commission where these, I'm calling them kids, but where these college uh, students would go out and like take footage and uh, we would use it for training. And then we started doing webinars. And in a nutshell, I created the job that I always wanted. I created the career that I wanted. After practicing law, you know, as a prosecuting attorney or trial attorney, Last year, I was promoted to deputy director Great. of the agency. So, so that's I'm, one from the top? Yes, I'm deputy oh. executive director Great. Great. of the agency. I mean, I, I, we'll finish up now because that's just a great story to finish up. But I would say, and I just get your point of view, and like, and to me, a huge lesson to, to push out from this podcast is the civil servant, the person who works for the government, on two levels. It's good that your director let you do that at the time because quite a lot of friends of mine are told, Hey, you know, here's the pace we go at. No one rocks the boat. There's jobs for everyone, you know. And it's like you're not encouraged to be uh, creative, a maverick, put more in than you need to, just do any more hours than the hours that you're paid for. And it's really one of the biggest problems with civil service because it doesn't – it's a job for life. You get your thing. You got your union. You know, if one person – it's all the way back to our opening about Rosa Parks. It's one person in a a place – can spark enthusiasm and motivate people. And by the way, what you're actually saying is those people that you're all, you know, are, have a similar mindset, they're enjoying their jobs more. You yes. Because they're putting more back in and they're, yes. they're, there's more social interaction. Yeah, definitely. I can say when I wake up in the morning and I'm getting ready for work, I am almost skipping through the house because I love my job that much. Like, I feel so excited to go in and see what the day is going to bring and to see how we get one step closer to fairness and equality in this nation by what we're doing in this little state of Connecticut. It feels good. Like how many years rewarding. has that been you've been doing that? So this is my 23rd year. That's a great place to end it. If someone in the civil service can still skip to work every day with enthusiasm, motivation. Cheryl Sharp, thank you very much for joining me on A Pint with Shawnee B. And uh, look after yourself and look after all of us. Huh? Yes, I definitely will. Thank you for the opportunity to be interviewed. This has been great.